Hey, this is Kieran, Coach's Corner Chats, and joining me is Kai Edwards. Kai, where are you at and what are you up to? Yeah, my name's Kai Edwards. I'm from uh, I'm at Southern Utah University in the Western Athletic Conference, coaching Division One women's soccer here and originally from Los Angeles, California. How long have you been there at uh, Southern Utah? Yeah, I got here in January of 2020, coached for about two months, and then was on a COVID shutdown for a bit. So, you know, was working to turn turn a program around uh, while not being able to coach our team or recruit in person. So it was fun to find a different way to to get to get better. What did that even look like? like? What did you do to try to maximize the opportunity that you had? Yeah, I mean, we had to lean on a bunch of, you know, friends and colleagues we have known and trusted. Mario Felix at the time was our recruiting coordinator and assistant coach. So we just called a bunch of people we knew and could trust more than just our eyes and video. We could call them. How did they train? How's their family? And kind of know that type of stuff. Um, so, yeah, we we were watching high school film. You know, a, a player this year uh, was all freshman team. Um, and the way we found her was we were sitting there and I just said, go on max preps and find an outlier of a stat. And he looks and he's like, there's a kid with 55 goals in 11 games. So we look, obviously, small league, um, small division and stuff like that. I'm like, I don't care. That's a lot of goals. And I coached a kid, Hannah Diaz, at, at St. Mary's College. That was the same. And Hannah's playing in Japan, has played in France went to the national team and it was the same. So I kind of like saw that in her and I saw one high school film and she had four breakaway goals, never had to do anything else. Um, and I called her and I had to hunt her down, had to call, found the principal's number. Then the principal gave me the, the coach's number. And then the coach was like, I don't really know your level. I'm like, well, I appreciate you not just overhyping her. She plays like second or third division in the state league because she lives out of the middle of nowhere and doesn't even know she wants to play college soccer. And I was like, all right, just give me your number. So talked to her. It was October, I think, or September of her senior year. She ended up – she's number one, I think, in Utah in the state all-time in goals, scored 199. And I was like, hey, you want to come here? And she's like, I don't know. Like, what is this? I don't know what it's supposed to do. She ended up committing and then – decided to graduate early and came in January and then she became, she was a starter and all freshman team. So we, we had to get creative. We had to take some chances. We had to trust our gut. We had to trust a bunch of things. And, you know, uh, I'd be lying if I didn't say we made some mistakes, um, you know, and, um, and some we got really right. (laughs) How important is it to be able to say that and recognize that you're not always going to get it right? Like, how do you deal with that when you pick a player and it doesn't it doesn't work out? Yeah, I mean it's it's just facts, you know, and and the challenge is admitting your facts too early or too late, right? So don't give up on someone too early and, and don't hold on too late. So I think for us it's continuing to set process goals for them. And as long as they're trying to reach the process goals that they have control over, you know, we'll we we don't get rid of people. Right. It's then keep going, keep trying Um, when they don't like the process anymore is usually when they step away, Um, you know, but the goal is to make as little amount of mistakes as possible. But it's going to happen. And sometimes you just have to 
put your hand up and say, you know, it was a mistake either on my side or on your side, or I thought this, or, you know, I didn't coach you well enough or whatever it is. And is it irreconcilable? Can we change this? Is there a different environment within our team, position-wise, leadership-wise, that that we can help you? And if not, then, you know, that sometimes it's life and we both decide to change environments. Once you made it through the COVID experience, what were some of the things that you wanted to put into place to start the program, like foundation-wise, to build on and have success in the future? Yeah, for me, it was athletic and competitive was number one. Um, and those, for me, were we had to be able to compete athletically. I mean, still athletics, I'm all for the beautiful game, but if you can't keep up with anyone, it doesn't matter. So um, it was get more athletic and get more competitive. So depth and positions, you know, uh, the two years before me, there was never a travel roster. Everyone traveled. So it was get competition, make people earn the right to go on trips and and stuff like that. Um, so that for me was one of the, the most important. Um, was there a true soccer identity? No. Um, more based on the team we had, it was, okay, well, this group, let's get the ball wide and cross balls. This group, let's keep games close. The, you know, and so that's how we kind of finagled those first two years. Um, we, we kind of always talk about take what the opponent gives you. So it, the, the formation and shape don't mean as much as if the opponent's on the left, go to the right. You just have to figure out, do you pass, do you dribble, do you run to that that spot? So that that part hasn't really changed, but it was, yeah, get athletic, get competitive, schedule within our means ability-wise so games were closer more often, which made us more competitive, which made it more exciting to be a part of. You know, if you're losing every game 7-0, it's hard to keep having a vision. You know, so it was first make the right decision of who we should play. Um and then build upon that. And then, of course, all that got blown up because in year two, we switched from the Big Sky Conference to the WAC Conference. Oh. Different level, different players, different game, you know. And and to be honest, a lot of things went higher in, in intensity and demand. Um, you know, and some, some players fell off because, you know, maybe they were very good Big Sky players or decent Big Sky players, but struggled in the transition to the WAC. Um, you know, and, and it was better for them to go – make a different decision. You know, that was up to them. So, yeah, I mean, we've had multiple changes in environment since we've been here, but I think that's the new age challenge of dealing with mobility transfer portal for, for good and for bad, um, you know, dealing with mobility of assistance, mobility of budgets and, and conferences. So the ability to be mobile and nimble while also still having a vision, I mean, it is life. You mentioned growing up in California. What, when was the the first experience for you in terms of soccer that kind of got you on this path of loving the game? Yeah, I mean, I was a rec soccer player till fifteen, so I played AYSO. I was like an AYSO all star at fourteen, <laughs> um, and then I got in the club in end of ninth grade. Played for Fram Soccer Club, one of the biggest first clubs in America. Um, and then moved to Nomads down in San Diego. Um, but I would say when I really, and, and to that point, I would say it was a little more, I just played. Um, when I went to Sonoma State, um, I was part of the D2 National Championship team in, in 02. The Zemer brothers are very um, big on education and understanding, and 
they have cooperations in Holland with Franz Hoek and other people. And, you know, when you're around it that much, you know, one brother was the head coach at Sonoma. The other brother was the head coach of Santa Rosa United Soccer Club. Another one was running two clubs. Another one was about to join the U15 men's national team as a, as an assistant. I mean, so you're just around them so much. So I went and got my C license, you know, in my senior year, my B license first year out and my A two years out of, out of college because they were like, formal education is important so go do it because people in where you want to get to want that but also go learn in different ways so they just taught me you know i went to europe and watched soccer and i would go to people's trainings and just pick up things so i i would say my passion for the actual game of soccer probably came later um you know 99 women's world cup taking a group there i, I was helping a u12 palsbury soccer club team we had two future World Cup players, Whitney Ingen and Kristen Press, on the team. So sitting with them, you know, and you look back, you're like, okay, maybe that sparked me with them, you know, and then Sonoma. But before that, it was basketball, uh, Taekwondo. I'm a black belt in Taekwondo and was uh, part of the national team setup for Taekwondo. So that was more of my higher level uh, experiences. You know, I always tell people, you think it's dangerous to play Stanford in women's soccer, try fighting the number two guy in the world from South Korea. You know, you make a mistake, you, you could not live, right? So my higher level preparation and experiences will come from, from that, you know, but being a part of a D2 national championship team is also some pretty good experiences. What are some of the things that you take away from the Taekwondo experience that help you when it comes to coaching and dealing with moments and games and practices, et cetera? Yeah, mentality. Um, I was in a training studio in, in California run by uh, Grandmaster K.S. Choi, who's now passed away. I trained with them from five years old to 25, off and on. And... I mean, he taught most of the class in Korean, so I knew a little growing up. Fridays and Saturdays were basically championship days, so people would come from all around the state to train there. Junior national champion, full national champion, national team, collegiate national team. So you're in this environment with people that only know one thing, and that's the win. And, find, and not win versus average people, win versus the best. So when you're in that environment off and on for eight years, <laughs> you, you learn preparation, you learn from them, uh, you learn how to deal with failure at the highest level. You know, I'm with people that, you know, lost an Olympic spot in 2000, and then we're back at training on Wednesday saying, I'm going to make the next Olympics or the world championships in a year and a half, right? So you kind of see that like bounce back mentality, but not like, hey, I'm just upset. I'm just gonna, you know, I should have worked harder. It was, no, oh, here's my plan. I'm gonna go do it. And I'm not gonna accept anything other. So you kind of learn that mentality being around them. Uh, Taekwondo in, in general is an individual sport. So you learn how to individually prepare yourself. But I think it's that, you know, when I got to St. Mary's College, the West Coast Conference was the number two conference in the country, only behind the ACC. So we were capable of playing against Stanford, Cal. We went to Kansas. Marquette was a top 25 team. UCLA, USC, we played them all. And I think being coming up in an environment 
where as long as you're prepared, you dodge nobody. Uh, I think that's kind of what Taekwondo taught me was if you're prepared, go get the highest in the bracket you're in. You know, and in Taekwondo at one point, I was probably the second highest bracket in the world, you know, and, and competing versus the top four in the country. Uh, you know, so when St. Mary's, we were decent at a time. I would schedule Cal and Stanford on the same weekend. Now, maybe a mistake, but I wasn't afraid of them because I knew I can prepare our team for it. So I, I think it kind of teaches you that little bit of bravado. That's um, a little art of war also. Like, am I going to go attack someone? Am I going to defend someone? Am I going to play on the counter? What are they going to do? Um, I'm a chess person too. So it, it, it kind of that same thing. Okay, they're trying to attack. Do I just defend it or do I attack them before they even see it? So, yeah, you kind of learn all that stuff and you put it put it to the game of soccer. And you're like, you know, going going to UCLA or BYU on a day that's scary. <laughs> I mean, it could, it could still suck, but it's, it's it's not that scary. You mentioned as well getting coaching licenses while you're still at Sonoma State. When did you get the idea of Kai might be really good at coaching soccer? I still don't have that idea. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think it was, it was more the phrase like, like I trusted the Zemers a lot and I still do. Um, there was no reason to ask them why. Like they told me to go get my C license. So I did it. I didn't even think I asked, why should I? I just, Asked my mom for 200 bucks, asked the club team I was working with 200 bucks. I put two and went and got a C license. And then they were like, just get them all. And I just kept, I don't, honestly, I don't think I ever thought about why. I think I just looked at them and did it, you know, and it goes to find mentors you trust because sometimes they're going to explain why. And sometimes you just do it because they said so. Right. And, and so I just did it and was constantly around. Uh, failure and greatness as a coach. Um, I was with the uh, Danville Mustang ECNL team that that won a national championship. I was around um, an ECNL national championship, a USYS national championship, the 97s at Sereno, ECNL national champions, Nationals DA in, in Michigan when they won national championships. So I was around them, but I was also around, you know, the second team that went 0-14, you know, so – I think it was just the constant exposure to experiences that made me think this is the environment I'm always probably going to be in. You mentioned St. Mary's. Is that your first stop once you leave Sonoma State? Or what's the next move? Once you start getting all these licenses, what does Kai do to then find a coaching position? Yeah, so I was coaching my senior year. I, I mean, I coached since I was in high school. So when I graduated, Sonoma didn't know what I was going to do. So I called Travis Canal at Western Washington University, who's still there, just won a D2 national championship this year. Um, and I called him, and he's like, sure, you can come volunteer. So I volunteered for them, played semi-pro in Canada because it's on the border for Syria United, and was coaching volunteer, and he just let me do whatever you want to run a six V six tournament to make you money do it. If you want to recruit and your parents want to buy, pay your way to get there, do it. So I just worked. And then for two years, we were top 25, went to Sonoma state on the women's side, top 25, and then got a assistant job at Santa Barbara. Um, 
we failed our my first year six and 12. Um, we failed on the field we failed off the field we did a lot wrong and and then the next year went 12 six and two and was top 25 and made the ncaa tournament so then i got the job um at saint mary's college at 28 years old when you mentioned the santa barbara the first year was a failure and then you when you look back what was the difference between the two seasons i mean we got a bunch of kids back we had 10 10 um, scholarship kids were out injured and some of them were in the summer some were bad luck some were probably our training environment you know was very combative and competitive so we maybe didn't train them correctly also so we had 10 scholarship kids out right so Part of it was eight of them came back. <laughs> and then part of it was the class that came in, Katie Roby, Emily Olhaver, Alyssa Sanchez, Corey Ishida. I mean, they were some of the best in, in Southern California, and they came to Santa Barbara. Um, so when we were able to mesh them together, I mean, I think that year front line was all first-team all-league. Our tacky mid was first-team all-league. And this is in a conference that it was a mid-major that had two teams. We got in and Long Beach got in as an at-large. So to have four, five, six attacking players on the first and second team in a in an absolutely loaded conference. I mean, we, we were very, very good, um, you know. So that and that gave me the opportunity to get the same marriage job. The other thing that I wanted to know is when you reached out to the coach at up in Washington, and he was like, "Yeah, come on over and do. We'll let you do whatever." How important was it that not only did you knock on the door, but people were willing to open it and let you in? Yeah, I mean, I've had the door shut many a time, right? And so Travis was great, and Greg Brisbane was the assistant. So they had both the men and women. Greg's now the head of the men. And Greg took me under his wing. He's probably like five, six years older than me. took me under his wing, and, you know, I was probably 23, 24, and he's like, do it this way. Let's hang out here. Let's do this. So it was good to have those early mentors. I was closer to Leslie Gallimore. She was at University of Washington. So I would go down and watch trainings or, you know, whatever. So uh, Scott Newman was at Northwest Nationals at the time. So I was around all these people that, you know, that that guided me, but also, um, you know, a, a skill I've learned later, but it was people that weren't afraid to hold me accountable and tell me when I sucked at something. You know, I, I was on the ODP regional staff. I got lucky, was a volunteer. And then two years later, I was like the assistant director of it. You know, well, when I wasn't any good, Platini, who's now the director of West Coast FC in SoCal, he was the director at the time. And Mike, who's at Santa Clara, now he's in Oregon, they would be like, this is why it's not good. And they weren't like, we're just going to let you go away. They told me to my face, Joey Hoffman down in SoCal, hey, this is what you did well. This is what you didn't. Right. And I think having friends and acquaintances that are comfortable with the crucial conversations is is why I keep coming back. Right. Like uh, when I lost my job at St. Mary's, I went to Arizona State as a volunteer and Kevin Boyd, ruthless. <laughs> but he's like, well, this is why you failed at St. Mary's. This is what you can learn here. This is what you can bring to Arizona State. And this is why you're going to be better when you leave here. And he was right. You know, where. Five people probably didn't answer my phone call when I left St. Mary's, where Kevin Boyd, I called him, and he's like, let's talk on why. And I called Jerry Smith at Santa Clara, and he's like, I want you on my staff. This is where you didn't do well. This is where they didn't value you, but this is where you could be better, and this is what you're good at, right? So it was really important talking to people like Jerry and um, Kevin Boyd at ASU. Becky Burley was at F Florida. G was at A&M. Um, 
and Neil at Cal, that was the group I probably talked to the most along with the Zemers on, okay, let's reset. And they told me the truth, you know, where other people were either afraid to talk or just wouldn't answer the phone, you know, and that's why I think you were at that thing where, uh, or my, my presentation, that's why there's a difference between friends and, or, and acquaintances. Uh, acquaintances don't tell you the truth all the time, right? And if, and if you don't trust them, you're not going to listen to it anyway, you know, where my group of people I trust to tell me why something's good or bad is very small. <laughs> Where has that ability to take constructive feedback and actually apply it versus kind of shy away from, where is that kind of character trait? Has that been something you've always been good at taking or have you just yeah. learned to get better at it and now you reap the benefits and you say, oh, maybe it's actually helping me to get better? And I think it's a little of the art of war of if you truly are competitive, you want it, right? Where we say it and preach it to players all the time, but as coaches, we shy away from it, from ourselves, but we want to give it to the, I mean, I've had players walk in, shut my door and give it to me. Like, <laughs> you know, and I have to, I sit there and, you know, 10 years ago, I probably was very defensive and then processed it. Where now I'm a little bit more processor of it, when, especially when I know they're trying to, you know, get it out and maybe have follow-up questions showing that I want to hear more. And then I go back and process it. And then I usually try to have another conversation with them, not being defensive, but hey, maybe I missed this part. Can you give me more detail on what you mean by this so I can analyze it? And then I go call a friend. What do you think about all this? But I think it, it comes down to I'm competitive, right? And competitive people want to know why they're not doing great, right? And yes, but I'm also a human. Do I want to hear it every day? No, but I do think I have a skin that can take it and has taken it. And I've taken it the best of times. I've taken it at the worst of times. You know, losing your job, you know, and being out is not when most people want to hear it. And that's when I think the difference for me was, is I had friends that told me then, not when we had the best season in school in 20 years at St. Mary's. There's enough people that are going to, all your acquaintances are going to tell you did well then, right? My, my true people that made the difference is when I was failing, they had conversations to me because they knew I didn't take it as piling on. I took it as here's the ladder to get out of the hole where so many people take it as piling on. I can't take it right now. This is not it. Okay. Well, at some point, if you don't give permission to people to coach you and, and, and grow you, they're going to stop. And then you're going to be by yourself. Then you're, it's going to be really hard. <laughs> that was something I was thinking about as well. Was there ever a time where you said, maybe coaching is not for me. Maybe I need to just step away and look, maybe I just go to club scene or do something different. Um, was there any of that that ever popped up for you? Hundred um, percent. I got the Michigan assistant job after being a volunteer at Arizona State. So I was at Michigan with Greg Ryan, our former national team coach. Like this was dream job. It's not even a dream job. Like when you come from SoCal, you're not thinking about being at one of the biggest athletic departments in the in the East, right? So I I'm in the job and I'm like, this is it. And then Greg gets let go. 
I get a three month seven package. And I would say for about three weeks, I was applying for teaching jobs, janitor jobs, um, PE for middle school, um, like things I never thought I would do. I'm like, I like, I also can't be stubborn. Like this is the second person to tell me Michigan and St. Mary's in a four year span that I'm not good enough. So I'm like, I, this is it. I'm done. And there's probably a three week span of the darkest hole I've ever been in. Uh, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Um, my wife makes decent money. She was still working. So she'd go to work and I'd wake up and sit on her couch and stare out the window for eight hours a day. And I mean, I was done. <laughs> like there, the, I wasn't answering the phone. I had a bunch of friends, you know, calling out. I, I no phone, no nothing. Um, there's no bounce back. There's nothing. <laughs> like it was three weeks of the darkest hole I probably have ever been on. And then uh, Grompik, the owner director of National Soccer Club, calls me out of the blue and says, Heard you don't have a job. I'm like, thanks. And then he said, my buddy Kadani at USC that I used to, you know, we grew up together, said, you're a good coach and I should call you. I have no idea who you are. And I'm like, I'm not good. I can't coach. I'm never going to coach. And I went out there and they're pretty protective of their team. So they give me like a second, third team to train for like a week, send me down to blue chip with them in a snow ice storm. And I'm like, I don't need money this bad. I don't want to do this. Like, there's no passion to do it. And G and Jeremy Harkins and Tino and a couple of that the leadership group there was like, we're going to give you our development academy teams. And we've never had anyone else coach our first teams besides us. And I was like, okay. And I was like, I don't even want to do this. <laughs> and then I, I took their two development academy teams. I called Wampal at Oakland. Um, university used to be at San Diego State. I was like, hey, can I come volunteer? I just want to stay in the game. He's like, yeah, of course, like <laughs> whatever. So I was back in. Uh, my wife was graduating from Arizona State because um, she was our grad assistant <laughs> while we were there. And I was sitting in the stands with her and it was, I saw that and I applied for my master's while watching her walk across the stage. And I was like, it's Kai 2.0, let's go. And then I just went back to grinding and I treated my development academy teams like college team. They did individual video after every game. I broke down the video like I do in college level. We filmed everything. We got a heart rate monitor. I mean, I, they were a college team. They were power five college team is the way they were run. Um, you know, Oakland, we were grinding there and then it was just, and just that there is no, no other job, find a way to be successful. Right. And I think that was a little bit of the Taekwondo side of, I mean, back in the day when not everything was processed and some things were just go win. Like our, our studio was win a national championship, win the world championship, be on the national team. That was, there was no, like I did well, <laughs> You know, it was it was that, and I won like five California state championships, and they mean nothing. They're like, and it's a large state, but it was no. You you finished fifth, and the national 
to be on the national team, you had to be top four. And I finished fifth one year to Steven Lopez, who's like the Michael Jordan of our sport. He's on like Wheaties boxes uh, for winning Olympic gold medals. But um, like you look at that, and there was no next option. It was either quit or find a way to get first or die trying, basically. And, you know, I kept going until I retired at, at 25, 26. And then even last year, I came back and and took up Taekwondo again and made a run at it and uh, lost in the Western. There's three regions in the country, lost in the Western region championships and was nationally ranked and uh, qualified for nationals as a ring, but I tore my meniscus and couldn't go. But it, it was that mentality. It was like, there is no other option, right? And I don't lie to people. Yes, I'm a black guy from LA. I grew up in a middle-class family, right? There was no, if I wanted rollerblades, I got them, right? There was no, like, financial struggle of success. Like, my parents weren't rich, but I got what I wanted. So it was more the the plight of the minority of find a way. Like, <laughs> you ain't given nothing. <laughs> you know, even if I got rollerblades, I probably had to take out the trash for like two years and like <laughs> stuff like that. So you just learn, like if you want it, don't, sometimes you got to take it. <laughs> what has that dynamic been? You talked about early on when I started to do my coaching courses, I went to my, I can go to my parents and get a couple of bucks, hundred bucks from them and all that. How, how, how have they been in terms of your support and giving you that feedback that you needed so much? through some of the ups and some of the downs throughout your coaching career? To be honest, I think I only asked my parents for money one time in 10 years after college. I refused to do it. Like I would ask some friends, I would do things you shouldn't do, like take your 40 bucks from a private training and go to a casino, put it on black and hope it doubled. (laughs) Did that a couple of times as a volunteer. Sometimes it worked really well. Sometimes it did not. Um, you know, I maxed out a credit card, which you shouldn't do when I was at Western Washington. So I paid for my own recruiting trips. I did everything. I paid it off when I got to St. Mary's five years later. Um, but it's it's like what I tweeted a couple of days ago is I, I didn't ask people to gamble on me. I bet on myself, you know, and I took out a credit card and bet on myself in five to ten thousand dollars of debt in in recruiting and doing this. Cause I knew I was going to pay myself back at some point. No one else. Was going to, I was going to pay myself back. Right. I do not recommend everyone do that. I also probably have the safety net. If everything blew up, I can move back to my parents' house. Uh, but I refuse to ask him. I, I would ask Andrew Zemer helped me go to Europe three times. You know, trip was two grand. I had a thousand. He fronted the next thousand. And then I worked for him for five months after that and, and earned it back. So he, you know, they saw I was like anything when people see you're invested and you're just not checking a box, like if they have the means to help you, they, they will. Right. So I was surrounded by people that were like, here's 500 bucks. That's all it is. Like the difference from you going to Ajax and Holland for two weeks here, like keep it, you know, I had parents at a club in Bellingham, Washington sent me to, uh, I think it was my B license. Like they paid for it. It wasn't the club is they heard I was thinking about it. They, I had stopped driving my car because I couldn't afford it. I was just riding a bike around town and getting rides to games from them. And they're like, is this important to you? I'm like, I don't know. It's important to the Zemers. They just told me to do it. And they just, they wrote a check and handed it to me. I was like, no, I can't take it. They're like, no, no, we're giving it to you and don't pay us back. Pay us back by keep working hard. 
And eight years later, all three of their kids were at my wedding. It was unbelievable. They were, I don't know, I coached them at U12, so they were probably 28. All three of them flew down from Washington for my wedding. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I'm like, you guys got me here. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to ask about, you mentioned your wife, grad assistant at, at one point, um, and she has been by your side through all of, a number of these steps. How important has having her there to be that, I guess maybe your support or you're just that other person that's with you on this journey. Yeah. You can't do it without it. I mean, I go home and I don't get berated. I don't get like, she knows like we lose a game. I'm going to go have a pint and I'm going to say hi to her and the kids and I'm going downstairs and I'm watching film and she's not going to give me some lecture about letting it go. And it's not your fault. And she's like, Hey, I'll see you tomorrow morning. Right. Like I, and that's important. You know, this year we had the best season in school history. Two years ago was the worst season in my coaching history. And she was the same in both years. When you win, you want to have a pint and be happy and go do film. When you lose, you want to have a pint, be sad, say hi, and don't talk to anybody. And she's the same, right? And then, you know, it's, it's hard on a wife when, you know, you've been let go for, from two jobs and you have to move cross country. And we're lucky she has a... Uh, see, even before COVID had a, a mobile job. Um, uh, so she's like, hey, and it helps. She played college volleyball. So she at San Francisco State. So she kind of understands, okay, I'm gone for three days recruiting. And like her mom comes in town during double days because she knows I'm not here <laughs> for, for two and a half weeks, right? I'm just in my thing. So I, I think it's the most important. I, like, I can't imagine going through a toxic relationship or even by yourself. Like I did three years of head coaching pretty much by myself. Um, you know, and you go home and you beat yourself up on stuff. Sometimes you get too high on stuff, but you know, and then I had a wife, then two kids and you know, like, they don't care. They run up to me if we win or lose. Right. So, you know, it, it kind of gives you that perspective. Um, but I think it's key to, to have that, that partner that understands, okay, if we have to move, we have to move. Like if, if we lose, don't tell me it's not my fault. It's the referee to get over it. I like, you know what I'm going to do next. I'm going downstairs and I'm watching film and I'm watching film of the game. We just played while cutting film for the next opponent while preparing training for the week, figuring out what I did wrong, where I did right. And I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> So we go into a like a deep play, dark place for a couple, two, three weeks, and then you get the opportunity with nationals, and you start just getting that vibe back of like, okay, this is what it's all about. What's the next step? Is how do you end up? Is the next step at, at Southern Utah, or is there another step in between? No, Neil McGuire at Cal called one day and was like, "Hey, I, I have a volunteer job open for you," and it was on speakerphone. And I'm like, I'm not moving from Michigan to the Bay Area for no money. There's no chance. And my wife's like, we should talk about it because she could hear it. I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, Neil, looks like we're talking about it. And my wife was like, oh, no, like, it, it, you've always wanted to work with Neil. And I was, I was so confused. So I call Neil back. I'm like, all right, I need to get a club job. So I call Adam Cooper, the St. Mary's guy's coach. He's coaching Walnut Creek Surf. He's like, I'll get you two teams. And something key, he said, 
and I'm sure you're going to get a job at some point, and then I'll take your teams when you leave. So no problem. Like, don't even stress. If we get you for three months, nine months, just come do your thing. And I'm like, you know, awesome. Yeah, and he was great to work when I was at St. Mary's. So I we end up going to Cal and Walnut Creek Surf. And right when we got there, my wife tells me, well, I'm four months pregnant. So she didn't tell me. She knew. But her sister and mom lived in the Bay Area, and she wanted to have the kid around them. But she didn't tell me that was the reason why. She just was like, well, let's move to the Bay. It's like, whatever. So then Cal was coming off a struggle season. I think they were, I don't know, 3-12 and 12 or 6-something. and something. And then the next year we were the last undefeated team in the country, top 10, top 15, NCAA tournament. So then phone calls start coming, and then I got the job at Southern Utah, and then COVID hit, and I hurried up and became a head coach and then sat for a year and couldn't coach. <laughs> One of the things that jumps out at me is I've heard the volunteer word numerous times. That's something I think a lot of people think you just spring right in and you start making money. How important have has it been just to like, okay, it's volunteer and I'll find other ways to make some money. But how important have those kind of like opportunities? Because it sounds like you had a lot more freedom as to like, here's what you're going to do. And it was different situations or responsibilities depending on the program and coach. Yeah, my first job ever was volunteer at Western Washington, and then I found club, you know, and it got me in the door. Then I was paid at Sonoma part-time, paid at Santa Barbara full-time, head coach at St. Mary's for six years. Lost my job. So I was coming out of the West Coast Conference, and I moved to Arizona to be a volunteer because I knew I needed to go learn again and learn from someone who's done it. Kevin Boyd had done it. So I went there and I was like, hey, I need to get a job. So I Sereno, which is now RSL at Arizona, but Sereno Soccer Club in ECNL is where Julie Ertz and Sidney LaRue had played. Um, the director at the time was an old coach at Danville Mustang that I coached with while I was at St. Mary's. <laughs> so it was his team that won the national championship in ECNL. I was his assistant. He's like, oh, I'll take our ECNL team. Blah, blah, blah. So that's where I kind of made my money. Um, Got the job in Michigan, lost the job, Oakland. I had to reinvent myself, go be a volunteer at Oakland. Had to be a volunteer at Cal. So when people say, yes, am I privileged and I have a wife or I have the ability to make money in the club scene or be a consultant, of course, but I also built that part. You know, <laughs> I built the part to have the second skill set to run clubs and coach clubs while being a volunteer. Um, but before I got here, four of the five years before I got here, I was a volunteer. Only year I got paid was Michigan. Two years at Arizona State, no pay. Michigan pay. Oakland, no pay. Cal, no pay. And people think, oh, I'm like, bro, I was 30-something. I was 30-something and was a D1 head coach. And I had to go back and create new opportunities. And again, I, it's not lost to me. I, I have a skill set that makes money other places, and I have a wife that's supportive. But on a single income in the Bay Area, ain't easy no matter what. you know. And we were at a burn rate. I won't say the number, but it was not going to be sustainable longer than a year and a half. So we got to Cal in July, and I was gone in December. And we burned through half of our savings. Like our burn rate was ridiculous. But it was betting on ourselves to get back to where you want to get to. 
How important you talk about having the kids and such. How important has it been for you when you look at them as like a role model as to dealing? We talked about the art of war and some of these other things, and they're seeing you go back and compete in taekwondo. How important has it been for you and your wife to kind of say, "Hey, we're betting on ourselves." You said that a couple of times, but I think it's really cool. How cool is that for them to see it, and how important is that for you as you continue to like run a program and all the things that are involved? Yeah, one of my biggest phrases is being a problem solver. And I mean, we tell our three and one and a half year old to solve the problem, right? If it's, you know, I'm stuck, I need to walk around the chair instead of through it, whatever. So be a problem solver, right? And for them to see it and be around it, you know, do they process everything? No, but I bet they process things we don't know they do. Um, so I think it's important to not be, if you don't want your kid to be a quitter, don't quit, <laughs> right? If if you want to tell your kid to get knocked down and cry and get back up, you can't get knocked down and lose a game on Sunday and quit and not want to coach the practice on Tuesday. Right. So like they need to see the, the control, the controllable responses so often. Um, but then the other part is, you know, when you're single, I mean, I've only lost a job when I was married. Maybe it is her fault. Who knows? Um, but when I was single, um, you know, and I moved, I don't have to tell anybody. I, I have to tell my landlord, here's first and last, and and I leave, right? Or now, like, our kid was born on December 13th, 2019. I got the job here on the 11th. I was commuting back and forth from Utah to California for two months because the kid, we wanted to have her checkups and everything in California. I was coming here. I was here Thursday, no, Friday. I was training Friday, training with the team Saturday, hanging out Sunday, train the team Monday, train the team Tuesday morning. I was coaching a boys high school team, Monta Vista High School in NorCal. So, and they paid decently. So I didn't want to give up that pay. And we were in the middle of season. So I was flying back. I would train the team 6 a.m., in in utah on tuesday drive down to the vegas airport didn't want to pay too much parking would park at amanda smooth's house the director of albion da drop my car off there she would drive me to the airport then i'd fly to oakland get on bart the train get it all the way into walnut creek wife would pick me up at three drive me to the high school game walk straight on the field during warm-ups 5 30 coach the boys team Coach them Tuesday, coach them Wednesday, coach them Thursday, and fly back Friday. Did it for six weeks while hanging out with my kid. I mean, it was, it was, it was a disaster. Thank you, Southwest, for the flights. But it was, it was what you had to do, right? So, um, and part of that was to give the kid a better life, you know, and making decisions. You know, I was back on health insurance. You know, I took myself off health insurance for two years you know, and save the money and put it somewhere else and just hope that I can get hurt. Once again, do not recommend that for anybody. But also sometimes you got to do what you got to do to get what you want to get, right? So starting to make decisions on, you know, we had the the year in 21 here where we go two thirteen and 2, and I just had our second kid, and I'm looking at them, and I'm like, I can't get fired, right? And it was, we're going to work, recruit here, fly here, watch video here, prep here, do whatever it takes. And and don't look, and it goes back to our war and chess, don't look at the obvious. Who's on my team, right? That's part of it. What's around my team? What's scheduling? What time are we practicing? 
you know, what are the processes that are going into creating an environment for them to go? Is it just players? Is it players this year? Is it our training environment? Is it the way we're playing? Our video, how we give them video, too much video, not enough. It was everything. Analyzed absolutely everything for, and had to, had to, right? And, but part of it is I'm looking at both my kids and I'm like, they like their daycare. <laughs> so it's on me if I have to be harder, if I have to be nicer, if I have to, whatever it takes, <laughs> you know? And I think that kind of goes to, you know, what, what you see, what you don't see and, you know, sometimes the best fight is to go around it, you know, and and in Taekwondo, like there there is no other way. Like we're we were old school Taekwondo at our studio. That second and third, maybe because it was a medal, nothing after third mattered. And they were not afraid to say it. One of the other things I wanted to talk about, and you mentioned it at the convention during your presentation. When you look at college soccer and just coaching in general. It's a lot of white coaches. What has that experience been? Has, have there been obstacles for you based on, do you, you know, just because of the color of your skin? How, how have you kind of dealt with that? Is that something that comes across your mind um, and the opportunity that you have now at Southern, you know, Southern Utah and what you can do for other coaches um, out there that are looking to make it to the next level? Yeah, I mean, obviously nothing's ever provable, but yeah, do I feel like I've been on job interviews and been the Rooney Rule? 100%. Do I feel like, you know, people like to hire what looks like them because they're comfortable with it, especially in non-revenue sports? Yes. Most admins are don't look like me. It's no surprise the two athletic directors that have hired me to head coach their program, one is Mark Orr, who's light-skinned black, and one is Debbie, who grew up in the South, um, who's unbelievable, and her goal in life is like eradicate racism, right? So, you know, there, there's no surprise; those were two of the opportunities that I that I've had the most. Gronthic is from Asia, um, some part of Asia. I don't know. Um, the the director at, at Nationals. So, yeah, it, it's no no surprise; those are the doors. Um, you know, the hope is to get doors from people that don't look like me sometimes um, or get people that look like me to have higher positions, right? Representation's key. Um, I remember, I won't, I won't say his name, but a very prominent Division One uh, women's soccer coach um, who's black told me when I got the job, he said, I asked him like, hey, this, this, this. He goes, your job is to keep that job. That's what's going to make a difference in black coaches. Keep that job or any job, but keep employed because someone's going to keep looking. Kai made it back. Kai did like, I see a black coach being a division one coach in Utah. I can go do it. I, you know, I see him presenting. Maybe I can present one day. 10 years ago, did I ever think I'd present at the convention? No chance. Right. And Nicole Hercules and, and um, Andrew and Hugh Menzies, all these people kept promoting me and no, go do it, go do it, right? You know, representation and leadership. But yeah, do I think there's challenges? Yeah. And that's why I try to tick every box I can get, have an A license, have a master's um, in coaching education, you know, have, have done club, power five, you know. So when people try to find a reason or excuse, however you want to say it, um, 
I can check the box of it, you know, and I'm an outspoken person. I think some people aren't comfortable with people of color having emotion on their face and they take it as aggression and not personality because um, it's not how they would have done it. It's, it's not corporate. Well, corporate was defined when in the early 1900s by people who were in corporations. Well, people in corporations didn't look like me. So it wasn't really defined by people from my culture or whatever. They want me to assimilate to their personality and their ideologies of what they think it should be. So in the end, what do they really want to do? They want to whitewash your personality so it fits in, so it makes their constituents feel comfortable. And sometimes you have to do it. And you do it. Sometimes you don't. And you get people like Debbie Corum, who I had here, and Mark Orr, who support it. And I've also had people that don't support it and tell me to shut my mouth and be quiet and just do what they're asking and be more business licensed and more corporate and more... Listen, <laughs> so I, yeah, there's, there's challenges. I think everyone has challenges. I think the white male has challenges, white female, Native Americans, Mexicans, Latin, everyone, everyone does. I can't speak to them because they're not mine. I, I can speak to mine. There's not many people that look like me in the, in the avenues I'm in. Um, there's not many people that feel comfortable with brash, um, educated people of color speaking, and they want you to tone it down, which has its own undertone, but tone it down so they feel comfortable in conversations. Um, they want it to be bland. <laughs> so you're not to hurt people's feelings um, and make people feel uncomfortable, not knowing you're hurting our feelings by making us uh, wash it down for you to feel comfortable. Um, you know, so I, I think those are the challenges coaches have every day. And you see people like Kia McNeil and and Kadani and uh, Hugh and some of those navigate it at the highest level. Um, but for every one of them, there's 10 people that either never got the opportunity or couldn't navigate it, right? And that was me. I either didn't get the opportunity or I got it and didn't navigate it well, navigate it well enough or, or whatever. And, you know, and it's coaching. So you're in, the, in a turmoil unless you own your own business, you know, you're working for someone, right? So... Like Colin Coward says, don't chase money, chase leadership. The last thing I wanted to ask about is your ability to remember coaches from 20 years ago, like when you started or the coaches you played for at Sonoma State to how important has developing those relationships, not to just say, oh, and you talk about acquaintances versus friends. How important is it to be able to not only recall those, but the, the ability for you to pick out name by name and what they did for you. And it makes me, it's like a different level of connection that you've made with people. And how important has that been for you, not just as a coach, but in life and just kind of as you keep moving forward, and maybe as you are as a coach, how important that is as you connect with like your assistant coaches and the opportunities you give to future coaches. Well, I, I mean, for me, I'm a, uh, I'm strongly dyslexic and auditory learner. So um, visual things are important to me. And I have a map in my head. So I remember people like where they're from. <laughs> so I might not remember their name, but, you know, Becky's from Florida. G's from a and Like, it's just how I remember things. Um, but it's funny. Like, I name things 
after like we do a passing exercise um every once in a while and it's called bird passing now most of my team has no idea what that is but aaron bird runs next level training in lt up in the detroit area and they're all his type of exercises but my team just thinks it's called bird train passing you know or g's possession exercise well g is grunting from there or you know i'll reference a so when i talked to becky burley about this one day or when jerry in 2009 did this uh, for me it's the appreciation of it it's you know knowing where you came from a little bit um, but also knowing if you have a question on where where do i go back to you know scheduling the what i've learned the most from scheduling kevin boyd and from arizona state he's now at uh, milwaukee and uh, Mike Friesen at San Diego State and Ada Greenwood when he was at University of San Diego. I remember how they talked about RPIs, strength of schedule, home wins, away wins, who to play in what conference, why to play in. That, like, I, w- I always say, I remember what I want to remember and I don't when I don't. You know, And most people that know me in the college team, like my strength in recruiting was be the the weird uh, idiot savant that would be like, oh, that kid, her mom went to school here, her dad did this, he does this, her older sister did this let it, from 10 years ago. But then they'll be like, hey, what's what's uh, the jersey number of your right back on your team now? I'm like, I don't know. That's not that important. So I have, I have no idea. I, you know, But I can tell you, you know, Kalen Kugler from West Coast FC who played at Santa Barbara was all freshman team in 07, you know, cut back to her left too often, needed to go more right and just got married. Like that type of stuff for me is that's like if you joke around with, you know, coaches who've known for me, that's my wheelhouse. Like, (laughs) you know, but things that aren't that important are acquaintances in my head and I don't remember them as well. And it's not even disrespectful. It's more elevating the friendships more than um, diluting the friendship with knowing too much about acquaintances. This chat has been so awesome. I'm going to go ahead and shut it down. This is Kieran with Coach's Corner Chats with Kai Edwards, and I'm out. Peace. What a great chat. Thanks for checking it out. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Twitter at Coaches Let's Chat. Hit that subscribe button. And once again, if you get a chance, drop a review. It's super, super helpful for growing the podcast. Have a good one. Peace.